Welcome to Beyond the Bounce. I'm your host, Coach McGraw, and I'm joined by my co-host, Coach Coleman, and we are bringing over 20 years of combined coaching experience for your listening entertainment. On this episode of Beyond the Bounce, we have New York Times bestselling author, Jeff Perlman. Jeff Perlman has written nine books, and his most recent book, Three Ring Circus, is about the Lakers dynasty in the early 2000s. We brought him on just so he could talk about coaching. He does a great story about Phil Jackson, and he's talking about Pat Riley. And then, of course, I had to talk, get him to talk about Jimmy Johnson and my Dallas Cowboys at the end. I hope you guys enjoy it. Thank you once again for coming on the show. Um, just to to jump right in it, um, you know, in 2014, you released Showtime, you know, the biography on uh, LA Lakers, 1980s uh, version. And uh, fast forward to, the, to today with the uh, Three Ring Circus, you know, what was the motivation behind doing this this book um, after already doing a Lakers uh, book previously? I mean, I don't really think of it as... Uh I don't, there's not a, you know, in a way I feel like I've been doing all these interviews and I kind of lie and make it sound like there's more connective <laughs> tissue than there is. Truth of the matter is, it's a really good subject for a book and it's, I, you know, they have these giant characters and it's a huge franchise and it's a kind of era that I don't think was really ever analyzed that well. Right. I mean, there's some really good books on it, pieces on it, but I don't know. So I just, when you look at Shaq and Kobe and Phil and you look at the team and the franchise, like, I actually feel like in a way I'm full of crap sometimes and I'll say, well, you know, the connective tissue between the franchise and mine, the truth of the matter is like, it's just a good subject and you're looking for a book subject to write about and right. this is kind of how I feed my family. So the subjects have to be books that have a chance of selling also. So that book about the 1996 Cleveland Browns probably isn't going to be happening, you know? So, <laughs> I mean, just being honest, so you look yeah, for really good for subjects sure. and good people and this kind of met all those expectations. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I'm Coach Coleman here. I, we like to keep it light here. I was going to ask you a question later, but might as well do it now since you said it. How many podcasts have you done in like the past week? Because like I've actually listened to like the Rosilla one and a couple other ones, and I'm like, dude, this dude's just working his butt off right now. I am definitely working my butt <laughs> off. I um, if you take podcasts, radio shows, some TV shows, web series, this is probably if I had to guesstimate around my 150th interview. That's <laughs> just, insane. That's crazy. But you know what it is like, just being honest, number one, I'm always like, look, I have a book out. Yeah. I don't care who you are. I don't care how many listeners you have. I will appear. Yeah. And it's an, if, if someone wants to have me on, it's an honor that they actually want to talk to me about, about something I, I did. And I, I just don't understand people who don't act. I mean, like, it's basically two weeks of talking about something that you worked your ass off on for two years. Um, Right. And, and does it get repetitive? It definitely does. To right. Some of the questions, like when you asked me why did I write the book, I think the reason I just gave you my really sort of, in a way, crass answer right. is because I've been asked that question <laughs> 7,000 times and after a while you're just like, you know what, screw it. Yeah, I'm just going raw. So. <laughs> no, definitely. And, and like, like you said, I mean, there's so many people that, you know, maybe would pass on an interview like this, um, but we definitely, we appreciate it. You know, we, we have a nice following so far. Uh, most of our followers are coaches that are either at the collegiate level, high school level. Um, and so that's kind of our pocket. And, you know, in this book, I know you, you, you touch on, you know, obviously the relationship between Phil 
Kobe and Shaq. Um, when we look at Phil um, under uh, you know a, a finer microscope, wh- who did Phil favor? You know, over those years, or what? Based on your research, was there one over the other that he really kind of favored as? Hey, this is my guy. Actually, I will answer that. Can I make an interesting coaching point that I have thought of a lot about this book? Yeah. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. I think what I learned about this, really, and like the, what the genius of Phil, so you know, did coach the team the first three years with Shaq and Kobe for almost three, four years. And he was just as smart a basketball man as Phil Jackson. Okay. And his experiences were rich and he coached at all different levels, but he wouldn't shut the hell up. Yeah. And that sounds really dumb. Or maybe it sounds overly simplistic. Players just stop listening if you keep talking and keep talking and don't stop and don't listen to your players and just go on and on. Right. And he would take something that you could explain in 20 seconds and turn it into a 15-minute lecture. And he really lost the players. And what Phil did is he came in, he always had this about him, like he was a delegator. Tex Winter was handling the offense. Johnny Bach, just traditionally, was handling the defense. Um he wouldn't lecture his players for long periods. Um, they would have little meditation sessions and stuff like that, but those are really mm-hmm. quiet to lather in your own silence. And he just was really smart about not overly interfering and not, you know, always talking for the sake of hearing himself talk. And, and that is the biggest lesson I learned coaching-wise from this book right. is shut the hell up. Like, just be quiet. Let your players handle it and make your lessons quick. Um, I would say he favored Shaq because um, Kobe was really difficult to coach during that period. He just was. He, 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 he saw himself as kind of the heir to Jordan. And even though right. he was the heir to Jordan, so he was correct, right. he, he wasn't Jordan yet, but he thought of himself like Jordan. And it would be really exasperating if you were playing, if the Lakers were playing, let's just say Toronto with Vince Carter or you know Allen Iverson or any of that ilk, Tracy McGrady, Kobe always took it as a personal challenge. And he would kind of scrap. You'd have this system. All right, here's the system. Triangle, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, Kobe's shooting eight for 30, and he's trying to dunk over Vince Carter. And that would just drive everyone crazy. And that kind of thing was a real challenge for him. Shaq never... Shaq, you knew what you were getting with Shaq. You knew the effort you were getting with Shaq. Right. You knew his physical dominance. But Kobe was a little hit or miss during that period. Awesome. So the, uh, you brought up the coaching thing, which I really love because I'm one of those coaches. I don't do that stuff. I know coaches out there they talk for 25 minutes after practice, and I'm done. Like I'm like, all right, guys, see you later. Like that's just who I am. My wife will kill me if my ass doesn't get home. So I just go, hey, I'm out of here. Um, so for coaching wise, especially, I know you have you, you you know a lot about the NBA. I know that. Um, so in retrospect, when we're looking at like Pat Riley and Phil Jackson, um, and I don't know if you know a lot about Pat. Uh, I'm sure you do. Um, how are those guys the same, but how are they different? What were their fundamental differences between those two guys? It's interesting. I wrote a book called uh, Showtime that mm-hmm. was about the 80s Lakers, so I wrote a lot about Pat Riley. And um, Pat Riley had a intensity that I would say Phil Jackson did not portray, at wow. least. Um, he had a phrase, Pat Riley, and it was uh, he would use it a lot called peripheral opponents. And he would always warn his players about peripheral opponents, especially during the playoffs. And what he meant by peripheral opponents were any distractions um, that could interfere. So peripheral opponent would be wives and girlfriends. Peripheral opponents would be uh, a party. Peripheral opponents would be going out for a drink. Peripheral opponents would be um, staying out too late. All these things he was like, you have to watch out for peripheral opponents. And he was super hyper intense about that. And 
that too after a while wore out with the Lakers like by the end the Lakers were done with Pat Riley because it was just too much and too intense and that kind of happens I mean after a while almost all coaches they wear out their welcome Um, Phil Jackson was not that at all he was um, almost the exact opposite which was you know Shaq you're 28 years old you know what's best for you I'm going to trust you just don't violate that trust Um, one thing he did really well I think like Phil Jackson did super well in fact both these both those guys did really well Right. They would get problem child players or difficult players from other areas, bring them in, and if they worked, they worked well. But if they didn't work, they never wound up major distractions. Like, uh, obviously, Rodman in Chicago is a perfect example where yes. he made that work. But also, like, Pat Riley would have, like, he brought in, like, Wes Matthews was a backup point guard. Wes Matthews was a pain in the ass everywhere he went, but he was kind of afraid of Pat Riley. Um, so both those guys were really good at taking fringe players you know um, J.R. Ryder joins the Lakers in 2000 2001 it didn't work out but he wasn't a distraction like there's something about Phil Jackson where he's almost like the dog whisperer where he can like he can manage people and personalities and even if they're not really working out they don't become overly disruptive they're almost intimidated of him and they don't want to disappoint him and that kind of how it was with uh, with Ryder yeah I'd also couple uh, meta world peace in there hmm very much so. I'm telling you, there's something about, there are guys like, um, like I wrote in the book a little bit about John Calipari when he was a coach of the Nets because he was going to draft Kobe and he didn't. And um, right. like when Calipari was a coach of the Nets, he was in his mid-30s, he came straight from UMass and the players hated him immediately. They just hated him. He was loud and he was obnoxious and he was a know-it-all and he wasn't that much older than they were and he's giving these lectures that last forever and he's just the, these rah-rah talks and like, when it's game 63 of a season and you're 15 games out of playoffs <laughs> and you're in Charlotte, staying at the Charlotte Hilton for the night, right. nobody wants to hear a 25-minute dissertation on how this is the most important game of the year. They all know it's not. Right. And good coaches have a way of just keeping things chill and in perspective. And when it's important, it matters. And you're not going to try to BS the players into thinking something's bigger than it is. Right. And I think there are a lot of coaches that do that. They, they sit there and they talk and they talk and they talk. And it's almost like they're talking just to hear themselves talk, thinking that they're that important when the players are the ones that are typically making all the plays on the court. Um, so we see a lot of that on our level. And there are a lot of young coaches. I noticed that the younger the coach, the more and more you see that. Um, but the, oh, more, yeah. the more experienced coaches, they get it. I mean, there's been games where after the game we just don't say anything like, "Hey, great performance tonight. Let's get a break." And it's done. There's there's right. nothing else to, left to be said. So um, that that's an interesting perspective. So uh, I mean, of of this, uh, was there ever was there ever a point um, in that dynasty where the franchise was almost like, you know, maybe this isn't going to work because they were at each other's throats so much? Well, I mean, the main area was. Um if you look at the 2003-2004 season, which is the last season they were all together, yeah. um, it was a pretty much a you know nuclear bomb going off pretty regularly. Um, Kobe was flying in and out from Eagle, Colorado with the sexual assault situation. Right. Shaq wanted his contract renegotiated, and you know one game in the preseason, he runs past Jerry Buss, the owner, and yells, pay me, pay me. Um, Phil Jackson doesn't know if he's coming back or not. It's just this giant, Carmelone is there, he's 40 years old, Gary Payton is there, he's a pain in the butt, he's just the wrong point guard for the triangle. Um, 
it's a big mess. Shaq is out of shape. And, you know, Kobe's one foot out the door to go sign with the Clippers because he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. And Jerry Buss just has to make this decision. He's, he's aware that this thing is dead. Like, this, there's no way this can go on anymore. It's just not going to work anymore. Right. And ultimately, he can either sign Kobe, re-sign Kobe, but that means letting Shaq and Phil both go, or try bringing those two back, but risk having to face Kobe Bryant for the next 15 years as a member of the Clippers in your building. And uh, I think he did the only thing he could do. But that was the one, that was the year where everything just hit the fan, and it was, it was there's nothing they could do. Otherwise... The beauty of it all was all those years people were saying like how'd they stay together here's how they stayed together they made a lot of money and they were under contract like there was nowhere to go <laughs> you know what are you, you going to do right. you're not going to trade Kobe Bryant for two kicks and Mitch Richmond like you gotta <laughs> you know you, you're blessed with two of the five best players in the league you roll with it right and I, I think what's interesting is it seems like it, I mean that kind of mirrors the situation that Phil had already been in before with the Bulls mm-hmm. I mean, um, the big difference I will say that's really interesting. And again, from a coaching standpoint, when he was with the Bulls, Scottie Pippen never thought he was Michael Jordan. Yeah. You know, like Pippen always knew he was number two, and Tony Kugoc knew he was number three, and Horace Grant knew he was number four. And there was a line, and it was very clear, and nobody was, you know, they had egos, but they weren't, they knew their places. And with the Lakers, you basically have two alpha type A superstars who really genuinely care about being number one this imaginary number one, but they they care about it. And that was a huge challenge. In Chicago, Pippen was never trying to be Jordan. Right. I, I'm fascinated by that last season like you were talking about, but also like, Gary Payton is one of my favorite players watching in, in, the, in the 90s. And so mm-hmm. when he got brought into that team, what were they expecting from him? Because I could just imagine him and Kobe. I don't know if you kind of researched that relationship, but those guys seem like they'd be just at it every practice, every day. I, I don't know, but I didn't know if you got any of that research on that. Yeah, so Peyton was, um, it's kind of funny. Peyton was not well-liked by teammates in Seattle, Yeah. generally. He was kind of a mean guy. You know, he wasn't a, you, I, I mean this in the basketball sense, he was kind of a mean drunk. Like, he was like, um, he would mock you, he would ridicule you, and we're this, and we're that, you suck. Um, Jelani McCoy, his former teammate in Seattle, and with the Lakers, said to me that, um, he said Peyton was the kind of guy like you show up at practice with a new watch and you were really excited about your new Rolex that your girlfriend got you and you're showing off your Rolex and everyone's admiring your Rolex and Peyton would walk over and say I got 10 of those at home <laughs> you know like just to make you feel like crap you know yeah. like he just went out of his way and when he came to the Lakers he actually was pretty okay for a while like he wasn't because he wasn't in that power position anymore you know he wasn't the alpha so to speak mm. anymore he was just another guy okay. what's interesting is during the finals against Detroit Peyton played really badly and he was just overmatched and he was he, he just wasn't the same guy as he used to be defensively or offensively and at one point during a practice Kobe said out loud to everyone he's like uh, he said to Phil Jackson he's like I'm going to guard how about next game I guard, guard Chauncey and <laughs> I, I think I can do a good job locking him down and he only said it because he wanted to see if Peyton would say hey F you I'm guarding Chauncey that's my guy I don't know yeah. and Peyton didn't say a word and Kobe was just really sort of, I think, had very little respect by the end for Gary Payton. He just thought he was kind of a shell of what he was. Wow. Wow. He didn't play terrible in that series. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty bad. He was horrible. He just wasn't. He was a terrible fit. I mean, Derek Fisher should have been the starting point guard, but you spend this money. Although they didn't spend that much. He came cheap, but like you're getting a whatever 13 time all time, you know, for 13 time all star. Right. And there are expectations, and you can't just like. 
you can't just start Derek Fisher over Gary Payton. You know, there are egos at play here. And all these guys took took uh, salary cuts to come win a championship. Um, but Fisher was a by far better triangle point guard than, than Gary Payton. Right, right. No, that's very interesting. And, and like Coach said, I, I was a big Gary Payton fan. Um, and he always had that persona. I mean, he was he always had that. And you kind of could see that a little bit. But uh, I, I didn't know it was it was at that point. And, you know, Kobe being at his throat, I'm sure, you know, he's like, man, this guy's not going to cut it. I'm, 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 I can see yeah. how that could definitely work out. Um, were there any incidents that, that, that during, you know, this book that you found – uh, that you would say was the worst between Kobe and Shaq? Um, and there was a fight during the uh, strike season when they were playing pickup at Southwest LA College, and there was a bunch of Lakers and a bunch of other NBA guys. And uh, Shaq and pickup used to call a lot of fouls, and they used to drive people a little crazy. <laughs> and um, not that surprising, I gotta say. And uh, I know one time Kobe drives, and there's a foul. And, you know, F you, no, F you, no, F you. And uh, Shaq just reaches back and smacks him across the face. Wow. And Kobe's like, oh, blah, blah, blah. And they're going off. And Olden Polonese, journeyman center, is playing. And he's holding Kobe back. And Shaq's like, I can get you traded, man. I can get you traded. And they're going back. But this is my team. This is my team. Uh, that was probably the ugly moment in the. But they had a lot of, there were a lot of mini dust-ups. And, you know, they were very passive-aggressive for the most part. There was a lot of, like, trash talk via the media. Like, right, right. after a game, you know, the, the press yeah. all runs to Shaq, and Shaq's like, yeah, we'd be okay, but maybe if someone didn't shoot 26 times, we'd be a little better. <laughs> and then they'll go to Kobe, and he'll be like, yeah, maybe if someone's fat ass got out of the game, once in a while. And it'd be like this back and forth of passive aggressiveness, and then they'd right. just the locker room and come back the next day. Well, as a Kings fan, I wish that would have exploded that locker room, because they ruined <laughs> my early 2000s childhood forever. Um but yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like I, I love that dynamic, and you know, as coaches, we have a Shaq and Kobe on our teams every once in a while. I, obviously, not as good, especially where I coach. But the, just their demeanor and how they act, and so it's always interesting to hear how like other coaches deal with guys like that. Because you know, every year we have guys like that. It just—it's one of those things. that's like I have a kid right now like that. Is he's—he's he's probably the super, the most talented kid I've ever had. But his personality doesn't lend very well to like yelling and getting on him and you have to try to figure it out and it's just it's 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 tough as a coach and you've probably seen that throughout your time watching well, NBA. I think the best coaches know their personnel you know and like I think um, like you mentioned Pat Riley I think Pat Riley like to me best coach I've ever seen is actually Pat Riley not Phil Jackson and I think wow. the, the reason I say that he, he brings Showtime to LA he gets Knicks he has completely different personnel so now instead of Magic and James Worthy, it's Patrick Ewing and Charles Oakley and Anthony Mason, okay. and he completely runs a different system. Like a one, he does a one eighty and goes from run and gun to beat the crap out of you down low. That's amazing. Like it's not Phil Jackson was great, a like great, great, but he did run the triangle everywhere he went. And even when he went to the Knicks, he insisted on the triangle, and it was kind of outdated. Yeah, Pat Riley is the he'll just morph and change. And the best coaches coach their players. They don't have a system and make their players you know adjust to it if it doesn't fit. No, that's very that's a valid point. I mean, and, and especially, I'd lo- I'd love to hear you what you think about this this year, like yeah. where you're at, like. I, and I think a great transition and, and valid question would be, you know, with that in light, personal opinion, who do you think the best coach in the NBA is today? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, um, who do I think the best? 
West Coast in the NBA today is. Yeah, sorry to put you on the spot there, Jeff. Uh, but yeah. Uh, you know, you know, you're gonna laugh at me because he did not. It did not end well. I'm a huge Doc Rivers fan. Really? I think Doc Rivers. I love Doc Rivers as a coach. It did not go well this year. Right. I feel like the the bubble is a factor. I just think that and that team had, definitely had some chemistry issues. Right. I'm just a fan. I know. Again, I know they're. I'm sure they're. Obviously, guys did better jobs this year than Doc Rivers. I just think consistently, players play hard for him. And to be around that long, coaching that long, right. that many different genres. If you think about the stars he's had, from Steve Francis, Garnett. to Dwight Howard, yeah. to Kawhi Leonard, to, you know, like, he's been a million different places. Garnett, Gray Allen, they always play hard for him. Like, they always play hard for him. It is not easy to consistently get players. And players love him, but he's not a, like, you don't walk over him. I yeah. think, I'm not saying X's and O's, he's the best. They're definitely better X's and O's coaches. But I'm a fan of guys who, like, they can get their players to play hard all the time. And I just think, I know the Clippers, they were kind of a mess. I don't really put that on him. No. I don't know. So I'm a big Doc Rivers fan. I think that's a great hire. I think that is the perfect hire for the Sixers. The perfect hire. No, yeah, that, I have a lot of Sixer friends who I love that hire. They think that out of anybody that can get Embiid and Simmons to work hard and play hard and kind of get that team right, it would be Doc. It's like when the Astros hired Dusty Baker as a manager, and they're like, you know what, that just makes sense. It makes too much sense. It's like too good of a hire. It just makes perfect sense. Yeah, right. exactly. Right. Definitely. So, I mean, with, with that being said, um, of those two eras that you've covered, you know, there's one era that I, for me being a diehard Laker fan, is that, that brief period, you know, in between where Kobe, before he won with Powell and Meta where I thought it was his coming of age. And do you think that the experiences and how did those experiences, I'd say, personally, I think Kobe was humbled the years after uh, Shaq was done. Um, but was there any anything or was there anything at that time that the Lakers could have thought that once Shaq was out, did they think that they were going to get back to the championship by, by all means? or? I mean, I think they planned on it, but I don't think there's any reason to... I think that's Kobe's greatest accomplishment, and I right. bet he would have said that too. Are those two? I mean, those teams are not great. You know, like, you can't talk about those teams as all-time great Laker teams. No. Because they weren't talent-wise. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts. And guys like... I mean, Pau, Pau Gasol was an excellent player, but he's not an all-time great. Lamar Odom was a very good player, but he's not an all-time great. Ron Artest was a great defensive player. He's not... They didn't have a Shaq. Right. You and know, they had a lot of Glenn Rice's. Yeah, and most of those guys were kind of on the tail end, the the other mm-hmm. side of their careers too. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they're definitely not. If you're ranking the all-time great NBA championship teams, those are not in the top thirty or forty teams, uh, and that's what makes it so amazing. What Kobe did, the way he carried him, and I, I think a lot of people, the year after Shaq left, and he came back, he got a lot of the blame, which he should have, and. Um, he somehow did it. Like he somehow did it. It's it's his greatest accomplishment as a player, no doubt. Right, right. I I just remember those rough years watching them play the Suns in the playoffs, and mm-hmm. you got Luke Walton out there, four dribbles, pick up. Where's Kobe? <laughs> You're like, oh my yeah. god, this is not gonna schmush Parker years. <laughs> yeah, it's, it was painful. It was painful to watch, and 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 as a Laker fan watching those years, I in my mind was like, this might not happen. This may not happen. Um, so I definitely think that, you know, like you said, those were, you know, once they got back to the top, that was his biggest accomplishment. 
And also, if you think about it, one thing he did well is, um, you know, he, he didn't want to play for Phil Jackson anymore. He doesn't play for Phil Jackson. And he realizes that Phil Jackson was probably more important than he, he realized. You know, and welcomed him back and sort of was open-minded about playing for him when he returned. I just think there's definitely a maturation. And especially at the end of his career, I think Kobe, I think what was really good for Kobe is just as a human being was the fact that um, he kind of stuck his last year. You know, like he wasn't very... It wasn't very good. I mean, stunt is relative. He was definitely a shell of what he used to be. And I think as far as making adjustments to the real world, it's very helpful to have years where you're not that good and you start thinking about outside of basketball and you lose a little of that killer instinct that's more about appreciating the moment. Right. So I just think for him, like, you know, it's that, it, the, the saddest thing about him dying, I mean, there are a million sad things. So I feel like his best years are actually going to be the ones that came, like the most fruitful years of his life seemed like they were kind of come off the basketball court. I don't think that's right. something he would have predicted at age 22. No. Right. You know, you're obviously correct. I actually, I loved Kobe after he retired. I actually respect him a little bit more because as, oh, a, yeah. as a Kings fan, I hate, I, I don't want to say I hated the guy, but I was young and like he just ruined it. And I was like, damn, that Kobe dude. And then now, like as a coach, it's funny because as I started coaching when I got younger, I was I was always trying to tell these guys you got to play hard, you got to have this mentality. And then it, slowly, I was like, dude, I'm talking about freaking Kobe Bryant right now. Like these guys need to they need to have that kind of mentality that you love. So as a coach, I started realizing like, man, he was to be the perfect guy. Like he's that guy that you want to imitate on that court because he left it all out there. And then afterwards, and then afterwards, I became a dad with two girls, and then he had his girls, and I was always like, man. You know, seeing him be a father and a, and a coach and all those things, it just it really hit me hard. Like I, I I'm still affected by it, and um, I, I didn't realize how big of an impact he had on me until he was gone. I tell you one thing that's funny. I'm a, uh, I have a daughter as well, and there's one thing that I just said this on a show before, but I'll say it again because I really believe it is um, the whole like hashtag girl dad thing. There's something about it that bothers me a little bit, and it has nothing to do with Kobe. It's almost like it's almost like wow, you're, you're a really good dad to your daughter, too. That's awesome. And it's like, am I not supposed to be? Right. You know what I mean? Like, am I supposed to be a worse dad to my daughter because she's a girl than my son? Am I not supposed to be as proud as hers? Like, it's a weird thing when people are like, girl dad. Right. Like, nobody says boy dad. You know, like, <laughs> am I supposed to be? Am I, like, are expectations lower? Because I'm... I never understand. I still don't get that. You know, like I freaking love having daughters. I don't know. It's right. Weird. I, and I think that's a trend because you always see those shirts that say boy mom. You know, oh, fine. Yeah. So I, I think that's kind of a trend of of today is, you yeah. know, just kind of jumping to the other side and saying, look, you know, I'm, 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 you know, girl dad or boy mom. So, yeah. Well, I, I remember, I remember when my when my daughter was very little. She was an infant, and I was standing outside of Costco in New York with her, and I had to change her diaper. And I, I think a woman saw me uh, reaching for the diaper bag, and she comes up to me and she's like, "Do you need me to change your daughter's diaper?" <laughs> oh, no. And I'm like. No, I do not. <laughs> you know, like, no, I do not. And I always, I've always carried that with me. Like, no, man. Oh yeah, okay. you sound like my 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 wife's grandma. She's like, wait, Kevin, he he, he changes diapers, and my wife's right. like, fuck yeah, he changes diapers. Like, what are you yeah. talking about? If he didn't, I'd whoop yeah. his ass. Like, yeah, yeah, drives me crazy. I know. Crazy. Uh, well, before we get you out of here, I have to ask you about this, and we're gonna shift gears a little bit because I'm a diehard Cowboys fan as well. And I bought your book, and I don't. You actually, I actually talked to you on Twitter a long time ago, but I had like two followers then, so I'm sure you don't know who I am. Um, <laughs> well, you're the guy with two followers. Yeah, I was, I was the guy that like nobody knew. I was like, well, I do respond back. But uh, I bought your, I bought your boys will be boys book. 
Um, but I was fascinated on Jimmy Johnson. I don't know what when you when I when I read the book and and I went through it and I was and I was reading it. It just the way he coached and the way he coached his players because he had that you know his famous line where he kind of let Emmitt Smith slide but not other guys. Um, I just I don't know when you were doing it. You can keep it short because we don't want to keep it too long. But just when you were doing it, what did you get from Jimmy as a coach? Did you did you see anything a little bit different from him that maybe you covered other football coaches um, that yeah. the way he deal, dealt with the players? Yeah, his famous thing that actually he's kind of has been repeated a lot over the years, but started with him in a lot of ways is, I mean, the vast majority of coaches when they when they greet a team, they'll say, "I'm going to treat you all the same." Like, all you guys, you're all even in my book, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was not that way at all. He was like, Emmett Smith will get better treatment than Derek Lassack. (laughs) And you guys should know that. And, like, number one, it's probably true for 90% of coaches, but only 5% ever admit that. You know, like, of course you're going to treat your stars differently. But he admitted it. And I always thought that was really cool and really sort of smart. And he was just transparent and, like, he was better to his stars than his scrubs. I mean, there was a, a running back named Curvin Richards who in, they played in the uh, it was the NFC Championship game and he fumbled twice late in the game. I think it was. And he, felt, he was a backup running back. He fumbled twice late in the game. They were meaningless fumbles. They were going on to the, either the playoffs or the Super Bowl. And uh, Jimmy Johnson cut him. Like, Heading into, I think it was heading into the playoffs. Cut him because he fumbled twice in a meaningless game. Wow! Like he obviously would not have done that to Emmitt Smith, but he was trying to send a message, and he was just like, "Screw it! I'm cutting Curvin Richards, and I'm going to send a message that I mean business." Um, he, he was he was just completely, completely uneven in the way he treated players, and very proud of it. Yeah, no, that's what I always fascinated by him because we always talk about that, like, "Oh, my best player," and it's like, well. All coaches in the back of my mind were always like, well, if my best player walks in like a minute late, there's no way I can't start him tomorrow. <laughs> like, it's, just, it's one of those things like, all right, you know you need to get your ass here. But I always read that and I was like, man, Jimmy just, he didn't care. He was like, no, nah, yeah, Emmett's my best player. If he's falling asleep, yeah, I'd, I'd just be like, hey, wake up, man. Let's go. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on our show. Um, we truly appreciate it. Uh, we wish you the, the best success with this this most recent release. Three ring, three ring circus, um, and just keep doing what you're doing. It, it's it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, very interesting point of views that you brought to the table this evening. So you guys know, just so you know, I got ten thousand dollars in appearance, right? Well, this didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, this won't get this won't get released then. <laughs> Four dollars and a diet soda. All right, we can do that. We can do that. Give us your bimbo, and we'll we'll take care of that. Nice, thanks. Thanks for having me on. All right, have a good one. Excellent, excellent interview. You know. Great, great insight. You know, not only does he know, he he knows basketball, but I think just in general he understands, you know, all different sports. And and from a coaching perspective, you know, he nailed it. He he definitely has been there. You know, spoken and researched uh, the right people to to find out this type of information. That was that was really good. Yeah, he 
when you read his books, and I recommend his books, not just became a comic podcast, I've actually bought his books. Um, you could tell he has a bunch of knowledge. He's been around sports for so long. Right. That, and that's why we want to have him on perspective for coaching. And I know this is an NBA coaches, I get that, in NFL for a little bit right there at the end. But it's good to hear what he has to say about the best coaches that he's been around. Um, especially when he brought up like Doc Rivers, those type of guys. Like that wouldn't be my best pick, but it's interesting for him, some guy that's around the league and isn't a writer, right. of like what he sees out there. And he made up great points. And so it was really a lot of fun. I like that he came on for us. Um, and just know, guys, we're just trying to bring you guys different perspectives, right? Like we have Coach Graves on before. We've had high school coaches. And now we have a New York Best Times or sorry, New York. It's hard to say, Coach. I get it. <laughs> I, can't I, I can't say it. That's why I don't. I'm a history teacher. Okay, so he's a <laughs> New York Times bestseller um, and, and just someone that's around the game. I mean, he was just on the Ryan Vasilla podcast. Like, he talked to Bill Simmons, the guy who wrote the book of basketball, and he's on this podcast. So I hope that you guys understand that. I know he's trying to sell a book, but, you know, he brought some good things that you can kind of take away from. And one of the things that I think that you guys should take away from this yeah. is the when he talked about c- coaches talking too much. Um, and that's a very common problem that I see. And I know a coach sees I it do too. It sometimes, you know, and, and it's tough. It's tough not to sit there and talk. We all like to talk. I mean, that's the bottom line. And I think that piece that, you know, just taking away, hey, you can wrap it up. You can say something being more concise. And I think, you know, he really focused on the good ones know how to do that. And that's something I know personally, just reflecting on what he had told us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that back with me. I'm going to use that a little bit more this, this year than running my mouth. Um, and just see, you know, what kind of impact it does make. Because like you said, when you're, what, 65 games in and, you know, like it does make sense. Like there's only so much you can say. And, you know, I'm no Calipari, but yeah, like I think that's a, a very valid and good point. Yeah, we have 28 games, guys, uh, at least in our schedule. And so when you look at that, like how many after-game speeches can you give that are different? And so for me, when I'm looking at it, and I do this sometimes, but, you know, from perspective, I've had assistants in the past or younger level coaches that you can see it, okay? When they're talking, you can see kids just literally fall asleep and you can see kids that are just literally sitting there and like staring at the sky and you already lost them on the message and you did it i think one way that i try to do it one way that i actually really try to actually sit down and talk to kids if i need to talk to them i have them sit and then we all sit and so they see me or i'll be sitting on a chair and they're all sitting around me so for me from my perspective as a coach that's more of an intimate way of doing it rather than having them stand around and you yell at them and talk to them about their zone defense or whatever it's like hey let's have this conversation after practice and we'll talk but there's also other times where i'm like hey i'm out okay my wife knows Peace. i gotta be home if i'm not home by five you might you know eat dinner with my girls i know i'm gonna be in trouble Peace out, and so it's one of those things and i think i, I loved when he said that because um, when you put it in perspective of the greatest coaches do that, you got to adapt your coaching, especially these kids. In, in this era of social media and this era of five-second videos, and if it doesn't load, these kids just zone out, do you really think they're going to listen to you talk for 15 minutes about how they need to play better or they do, they do these things? It's got to be quick. And in practices, when you're teaching these kids kids things, you got to be able to teach it very quickly and to the point. Don't draw these things out. Okay. Um, And especially younger coaches. I did it when I was younger as well. I thought the more I talk, the more they would respect me. I don't think that's true. Okay. It's, it's, Hey, does this guy know what he's talking about? Let's get out of here. Let's learn. And so for me, 
I really enjoyed that. I really think that's great. And I love the difference in the coaches, guys like Pat Riley and ben, and Phil Jackson. He talked about that. Like, be be a better coach, learn from those guys, and understand like what they do, and then transfer it to high school kids, which is different. But at the same time, it's the same. And, and the point that I think that we all need to respect and understand is we're not Pat Riley. We're not Phil Jackson. We're not Doc Rivers. Yeah. But their coach is just like us, right? And I think it applies at every level. You know, sometimes when I'm watching, you know, the NBA and I'm hearing them in a huddle, I'm like, I could do that. <laughs> like how hard yeah. it is to be like, okay, we got to get back on defense. You guys need to really zone in and focus in on rebounding on this end. Let's get two stops in a row. Let's try to push the tempo a little bit more. Let's turn it So, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's just, uh, I, I, I just think that too many times we're just trying to be somebody else. But I think these experiences and these examples help craft and develop our own coaching style and our own identity as a coach. Um, but the information and, and, you know, Pat Riley and Phil Jackson and, it's just cool to see that perspective. Um, and he's well-respected, you know, well-respected author. And I, and I definitely, uh, I got a lot out of that. Yeah, and, you know, learn from these things, read, understand different coaching books and things that you can do out there, um, and go from there and just, and, and just be a better coach. So that's what we're hoping you get out of that. And, be a better coach. And it was an amazing thing, okay? It was an amazing thing. And make sure you adapt and change, okay? If you don't adapt and change, like the thing you talked about with Pat Riley also, about how he went from different coaching stints and he had to change his offense. I think that's important too. If right. like, So I run five out and it's a lot, it's a guard oriented because that's who I have. But if, if I'm sitting here and I go to a new school and I got two six foot eight guys, I'm not gonna be like, yo, five out, bro. Like, this is what we're running. Like, you listen to me now. It's like, nah, we'll, we'll figure this out. Okay, we'll run a new offense. You have to dictate your offense, especially high school level, because you don't know who's coming right. based on what you have out there. Don't just don't just get stuck and say, this is what I'm running. Like, no, adapt, change, figure it out. Like, do it together with your other coaches in the program and your kids and listen to them and say, hey, this isn't working, coach. Like, don't be that guy that coaches. This is the system I've ran for 20 years and this is what we're going to do. And you, if you look at what happened to Phil towards the end, and, and especially in New York and those other areas that he tried That's it. That's where he failed. He failed there. He didn't realize that the game was changing. Okay, right. And, and right now the game is all about threes and layups. Right. Okay, threes and layups and fast play as fast as you can so adapt adapt to that and I think the ones that do it are the ones that survive and I think Doc Rivers was a prime example where he said hey he's, he's been there done that multiple teams multiple personalities and each time it comes down to hey I, I can coach I'm a player's coach like he knows how to motivate his guys doesn't matter who it is personality he can motivate his guys and I think when you have that ability to flex uh, you're definitely going to see some longevity in terms of your coaching career and you're probably going to have more success in different environments. So, you know, that's something that is, you know, my day job is, you know, I'm a, I'm a salesperson. So for me, sales is all about flexing, changing, uh, you know, following the, the other person's lead, being likable. Like there's so many different things that you do in sales and you can implement some of those techniques into your coaching style. And I know I do so much. Um, 
And I just think it's really important to flex and really important to, to, to be a chameleon and really um, don't stay so rigid and, 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 and make your kids conform to what you're doing. You have to be open minded. You have to be respected, but you have to be open minded. You have to be willing to look yourself in the mirror and say, hey, it's not about me. It's about my team. This is the talent I have. And with this talent, we're going to do this. And I always like coaches that I can see that do that because they have more success. And then you always have that coach that's running the same system for 20 years. He's got guys that are going to a spot like robots. And you're like, dude, he's got so much talent. Like they could be killing us, but coaches, he just set in his ways. And I love coaching as those guys because I know Easy how to, to stop be. them. And I know, I've been, <laughs> hey, I've been around this for five years. Okay, well, I've been going against you for five years, so I know what to do. So, yeah, just, you know, take chances. Have some fun, guys. Take I mean, chances. Have fun. We're taking coaches. chances every single week. Every single week we're taking chances. And the reason why we're taking chances is because we want to make sure – that we bring you some new content. I know we've been off for a while. We've been working, you know, school year started, uh, but we're back and uh, we're taking chances because we're going out there and we're asking some of these people, hey, we want you on our show. And it's not the easiest thing to do to get some of these, these bigger names, but you have to take chances Sorry about the fire drill in the back. We talked about that on our last episode. It happens. But take chances. As a coach, take chances on your players. Believe in them. Trust them. Take chances on yourself and your own ability. Go ahead. Apply for that job you think you're not qualified for. Right? Take a chance on it. Try a new system. Try to do something different. At the end, the only thing that that can happen is you will learn from it. And you will, you'll, you'll be better, you'll mature from it. So um, that would be kind of the, the consistent theme. Um, and keep it short, which I just didn't. Yeah, Coach just, <laughs> Coach just went against everything we, we just talked learned. about. He just went on a monologue for 20 minutes about taking chances. Okay, I need you guys to listen to so, me for about 15 so, minutes. So don't listen to him. So I'll keep this quick. Thank you for listening. I hope you learned something from this. We'll see you next week. Bye. Ha, 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 ha.